0: It is great to see all of you here tonight. Thank you for choosing to worship with us tonight. Um, And we do want to welcome Cordell G. back with us. He is Cornerstone's sixth COVID survivor. And he was just telling me a few minutes ago that he's feeling 100% uh, but is still waiting for his sense of smell to return. So. Uh, but it's great to have you with us, Cordell, and all of you uh, as well. Uh, by the way, one of the missionaries that we have supported over the years is Bob and Betty Bell. And Bob passed away a few years ago, and we received word this week that his wife Betty uh, passed away and Bob and Betty were faithful members of Cornerstone for a number of years, serving the Lord as missionaries in Haiti for a number of years. Uh, Bob also, uh, for many years, served as a West Coast representative for cross world missions uh, while they were here at Cornerstone and then when they moved on. And while they were here, Bob. Bell served as uh, an elder on our board. Uh, So they were just a wonderful couple, touched many lives around the world uh, during their fruitful uh, lives, and uh, we wanted to let you know that Betty passed away just recently, and we rejoice that she is with the Lord in, in heaven, but we would ask that you be praying for Her family as they celebrate her life and mourn their loss of her. Also, uh, we had some air quality concerns uh, for tonight, obviously, and we addressed some of that in the email that we sent out to you this afternoon. This is a crazy year. It's amazing the things that we're needing to deal with and communicate about that. I just don't think a year ago I would have. Uh, ever imagine Uh, it turns out from as we saw the air quality situation this week developing and then even today i learned today that there's uh, maybe about 20 or so air quality monitoring stations spread throughout the greater riverside area and i suppose they take all of those readings and then they average them out and then that's the reading that you see on your weather app, Um, but if you want to know what the air quality is like in a particular part of Riverside, you can go onto a certain website, I gave you guys the link to that, and you can actually see that the air quality is different depending on the area that you find yourself uh, in, and I learned uh, uh, this afternoon that one of the... uh, air monitoring, uh, air quality monitoring stations is actually here at Bourne's. Uh, In fact, I believe you can see it when you come in, it's just above the solar panels in the back there. Uh, So I was able to go on to that and literally find out what the air quality was here in this parking lot and pass that on to you. Uh, So, I mean, how many churches provide that kind of information for their people? How many churches have an air quality monitoring station on their campus? Uh, But we do, and uh, it was just another reason on a growing list of why I'm thankful that God has led us here uh, to the Bourne's uh, facility, and... As I mentioned to you, it does seem like the reading that we get here in this parking lot is better than other parts of Riverside, and so we're happy that the air quality here in this parking lot is better than in other parts of this city. Well, let me uh, have you turn in your Bibles uh, this evening to Revelation uh, chapter 2 as we continue in our study of the book of revelation we come to revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 and that's the passage i want us to look at uh, tonight and the title of the message tonight is a loving call back to our first love a loving call back to our first love in our passage for tonight jesus is going to speak to Christians uh, in the Ephesian church and he's going to admonish them for leaving their first love and he's going to show them the way back to this first love that they had left and if you looking at your life tonight observe that you at one time in the past loved Jesus more than you seem to love him now then the passage that we're going to look at tonight, I think, will be a tremendous help to you. If you want to know how the church of Ephesus got started, uh, you can find that information in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Uh, The church was started partly through the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla, whom Paul had left behind on one of his... Missionary journeys, Uh, the Ephesian church really took off when the Apostle Paul returned to the city sometime later. And soon after his return, he encountered 12 disciples of John the Baptist. Imagine that, running into them in the city of Ephesus. Paul, after a conversation with them, prayed over them. They received the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues in what was sort of a mini Pentecost. That is happening now here in the city of Ephesus. Paul then began preaching in the synagogues, or the synagogue every day for about three months, and then he began preaching the gospel and reasoning about the kingdom of God and the school of Tyrannus for two whole years, and people were coming and hearing the gospel being preached, um, and then going around and telling people what they had heard to such a degree that Two years went by, and Luke, the historian, tells us that all of Asia, everyone in Asia had heard the gospel during that period of time. On top of that, we're told in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, these words, listen to this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits were going out. Many people in Ephesus were coming to faith in Jesus. These miracles are being done. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 18, we're told, and I quote, that many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices or their deeds people were believing in Jesus and you knew who was believing in Jesus in this pagan city because believers in Jesus were confessing their sins and even disclosing and making known publicly admitting the evil deeds that they had been involved in imagine that And they didn't just confess their sins and linger in them. They got radical in their renunciation of their former sins. We're told in Acts 19, verse 19 and 20, These words, listen, many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In fact, so many people were being saved through Christ out of idolatry that it began to hurt the bottom line of the idol makers in the city who made idols for the people. These craftsmen of the city came together and conspired and essentially stirred up the people of Ephesus against Paul and against his ministry and against his companions to such an extent that the citizens of Ephesus rose up in loud protest against Paul and almost broke out into literally a riot. Paul's companions feared for Paul's life because things were getting out of control, and it was soon thereafter that the Apostle Paul left the city so that things could cool down, leaving a flourishing church behind. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 19. But that's an amazing church-planting story, isn't it? Imagine those things happening. What a phenomenal start for this group of believers in a pagan city that was given over to idolatry and to magic and witchcraft, for them to hear the preaching of the gospel accompanied by signs and by wonders, to believe in Christ and to be radically saved from their former life of demon possession witchcraft, magic, and idolatry, these new believers have transparently, publicly repented of their sins and renounced their sins in the most public of ways, and they've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ in such a way that must have left them loving Jesus with a love that was hotter than fire a love that must have spilled over into how they went about loving one another and all people as well. In fact, we know that about a decade later or so later, Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus, and, and he tells them in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, how he is hearing, and I quote, "...of their faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among them, and their love." for all the saints unquote the ephesian church was a church that had become famous for its faith and its love so much so that paul could end his letter to them in ephesians 6:24 by saying grace be with all those who love our lord jesus christ with a love incorruptible and yet in our passage that we'll be looking at tonight we find the Ephesian church a little over 40 years old and we will observe that they had left their first love we saw last week how the Apostle John was on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day and he was treated to a vision of Jesus Christ in heavenly glory in the midst of seven lampstands and holding seven stars in his right hand. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, we saw how Jesus explains to John that the seven stars that are in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. And one of those churches is the Ephesian church. And when speaking to John, Jesus says to him in verse 11, write of chapter 1, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And the first of these seven churches is the Ephesian church. Coming into Revelation 2, Jesus says in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. We saw last week how the angels of these churches are, in all likelihood, the lead pastors of these churches who are God's primary messengers to these local churches. So when Jesus says to the angel... Of the church of Ephesus right? he's wanting John to write down his words to the key teaching pastor of the Ephesian church. So the letter that we find in verses 1 through 7 will be to the pastor of the Ephesian church and to the church itself as a whole. The way we're going to break down Our study of this passage tonight is we're going to observe eight acts, eight acts of Jesus and calling the Ephesian church back to their first love. Jesus is going to communicate his heart to this church that has a lot of good things about it, but they've left their first love, and Jesus is going to speak to them with the goal of drawing them back to their first love. Eight acts... The first of these acts is this, Jesus in speaking to them describes himself in relation to the churches and their pastors. Jesus describes himself in relation to the churches and their pastors. You'll notice that all the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 begin with a look at Jesus with Jesus describing things about himself that he wants the members of that church to know about him. And here in verse 1, Jesus says these words, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstand lampstands, says this, and we'll stop right there for a moment. First of all, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He holds the pastors of these churches in his right hand. Jesus wants the Ephesian church and its pastor to know that he holds the pastors of the churches who are his messengers to the churches in his right hand. What kind of hold... Is this, what's the hold of ownership? These men belong to Christ and Jesus sovereignly can do with these pastors what he pleases. This is also the hold of security given the fact that no one can pluck them out of his hand. This is also the hold of usefulness Christ holds these messengers of gospel truth in his right hand the way a carpenter holds and wields a hammer when building a house. And by the way, guys, when Christ uses any of these pastors to any good effect, he gets the glory for that, not them. For example, when a house is built, no one praises the hammer, right? They praise the carpenter who wielded the hammer. And it's the same thing whenever Christ uses a pastor to accomplish anything good in a local church. He gets all of the glory. Jesus also describes himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We've already learned that these lampstands are the seven churches. And here we're told that Jesus walks Among these seven golden lampstands, he walks among the churches, he cares for them, and he tends to them the way a gardener would tend to his garden. He inspects them. He notices everything about them. He sees when a soul in the church is wounded or neglected. He sees the slight changes in a church from day to day as the church is either progressing in the right direction or digressing in the wrong direction. He notices when a church's light grows brighter or grows dimmer. He sees those good deeds that some of you do that no one else sees. He also sees the sins that We commit in secret when no one else sees. He hears the prayers that are prayed that no one else may hear, and he notices when prayers are not being prayed. He sees the good things that get done, and he also sees the good things that fail to get done because we're too preoccupied with lesser things. Jesus has much to say to the Ephesian church, but before he begins, he gets them to fix their gaze upon him as he presents himself as the one who holds these pastors in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, walking among the churches. And then he tells them that he's got something to say. Imagine Jesus walking among us and then coming up here saying, I've got something to say. Would you listen? We should listen. And I know the Ephesians were ready to hear what this one who walks among the churches says. This leads us to the second act of Jesus as he seeks to turn the Ephesian church back to their first love. Number two, he affirms the good that he sees in them as a church. He affirms the good that he sees in them as a church. Observe what he says starting in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. In other words, I know your good deeds. He goes on and says, I know your deeds and your toil. And the word toil speaks of labor to the point of weariness. So Jesus is telling them that he sees their good labor, he sees their weariness, he sees the good deeds that they have done for others, and even the exhaustion that sometimes goes along with their service in doing those good deeds. And Jesus sees that and appreciates it all, and he says so here. He also says, I know your perseverance. In other words, I see how you have stuck to the task and have not given up on doing my work, even though you have been tired and exhausted and provoked and discouraged along the way. I see that you have persevered in the truth when other people have not, and I see that you have persevered in faith when others have not. Jesus also says in verse 2, I know that... You cannot tolerate evil men. The church of Ephesus was an enduring church, but they could not endure evil men in their midst. Jesus is saying to them, You are an intolerant church in the best of ways. You don't tolerate evil men in your midst, nor do you give them a platform for ministry simply because they say that they are Christians. Jesus continues in verse 2 and says, And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The Ephesian church was a discerning church. They didn't just follow the teaching of anyone who claimed to be an apostle of Christ. They would put such teachers to the test to see if their teaching lined up with the teaching of Jesus and his true apostles. And if the teaching of these individuals did not line up with the teaching of Christ, then the Ephesian Christians labeled them as false apostles and warned everyone about them. If you were a false apostle in Asia Minor at this time you did not want to go anywhere near the Ephesian church because they would find you out and they would expose you. Other people might be fooled by such false apostles, but not the Ephesian church. In verse 3, Jesus continues his commendation of the Ephesian Christians and says, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. There's so much to love here. These Ephesians have not just persevered and endured through persecution and through discouragement. They have, look at the text, persevered and endured for Jesus' name's sake. This means that they love Jesus and they want to exalt his reputation They've endured hardships for Him. Though they have grown weary on some levels, they have not grown weary to the point of giving up and ceasing to do what they know to be right, and they have endured in doing what is right in this way for Jesus' namesake. These are wonderful things about the Ephesian church. And I love the fact that Jesus takes the time to talk to them about these good things that he sees in them. Jesus has something against this church, and he's going to get to that in a moment. But what he has against them does not blind him to the good that he sees in them. If you are a Christian, Jesus may have some things against you things that are in your life right now that he's going to want to confront you about, but he doesn't let those bad things blind him to the good that he has wrought in you and that he sees in you. That's the kind of Savior we have. At the same time, though, Jesus doesn't let the good that he sees in you blind him to the bad and just make him say, well, we'll just let that go. After all, they're strong in these other areas. Now, Jesus will see the good in you that he has wrought in you. He's also going to see the bad, and he's going to confront you about the bad that he sees because he who began a good work in you is not going to quit until that work is done in the day of Christ Jesus Jesus is relentlessly committed to your spiritual growth every single day. And if he sees any regression in you, he will take that very seriously. And that's what he does beginning in verse 4 of Revelation 2. And this leads us to the third act of Jesus as he seeks to call the Ephesian church back to their first love. Number three, he faults them for leaving their first love. He faults them for leaving their first love. In verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left or abandoned your first love. Notice that Jesus is not telling them that they have abandoned love. He's telling them that they have abandoned their first love, meaning a love that they once possessed at the first, at the outset of their walk with Christ in their earliest days as Christians and as a church. In the next verse, Jesus is going to be telling the Ephesians to do the deeds they did at first, which refers to some prior point in time at the beginning of their existence as a church, at the beginning of their journey as Christians. Many commentators affirm that this expression, first love, refers to the fervent love of the the new Christian Christian who is living in the fresh experience of believing in Christ, being saved from a life of ungodliness and being forgiven and being reconciled to God through Christ and cherishing the newness of all of that. This love is the love of a profoundly grateful person who understands that they were once headed for hell. They understand the wrath of God. That they have now been saved from. Grace, as we saw last week, teaches the sinner's heart to fear, and it is grace that relieves those fears. And it's in the fresh relief of those fears that a profound love springs from the heart of a new believer for Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Jesus teaches us that the one who is forgiven of little loves little, but he who is forgiven of much loves much. And fresh in the experience of that forgiveness, the forgiven sinner loves Jesus with a love that is hotter than fire. And this seems to be the love that the Ephesians had fallen away from. As one commentator says, there Fervent love had cooled off, or as John MacArthur says, their passion and fervor for Christ had become cold, mechanical orthodoxy. In Revelation 2.4, Christ here is pointing to that fervent love that they once had for him at the first, and he's saying now to the Ephesians, you have left that. What strikes me about this criticism from Jesus is that this is an amazingly vulnerable thing for Jesus to say to these believers. You know, it's not easy for any of us to approach someone who doesn't seem to love us like they used to and to say to them, hey, I've noticed that you don't love me like you used to. That's a hard thing to do. Yet Jesus does this. This is the glorified Lord Jesus who is worshiped and adored by myriads of angels and saints in heaven. Yet here he is chasing down these imperfect Ephesian Christians and he's saying to them, Hey, you don't act towards me the way that you did at the first, you don't love me the way you did at the first. And I want to talk to you about that. It's a striking thing to me to observe that the fervency of my love for Christ even matters to Him. But this verse shows us that Jesus doesn't just want our service He doesn't just want our right beliefs. He wants our love, and He doesn't just want our love. He wants our fervent love. And if He sees that our love for Him is not what it once was, He's going to come after us about that and engage with us on that. And that's what He does here with the Ephesians. He faults them for leaving their first love, but wonderfully, He doesn't stop there. And this leads us to the next act of Jesus as he seeks to turn the Ephesian Christians back to their first love. Number four, he calls them to repent and return to their first love. He calls them to repent and return to their first love. Listen to what he says in verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent... And do the deeds you did at first. First of all, they are to remember from where they have fallen. They're to think back to their former days of greater passion for Christ, which they have fallen from. Sometimes we fall away from loving Christ as we should, and we fall away in small measures such that we don't notice, so small that we just don't detect that falling away and then we slowly forget the way it once was and then maybe we pick up a journal entry that we had written many years prior and suddenly we get a vivid glimpse of where we once were with the Lord and how far we have fallen or maybe we're talking with a brand-new believer, and we see their zeal and their passion for the Lord, and we're like, that's right, I used to be that way. What happened to me? Jesus is trying to provoke that kind of remembrance in the Ephesians right now. He wants them to remember. And I would say to you tonight, if you have left your first love Take some time to remember the days when you did have that first love. Remember what it was about those days that made you love Jesus so much. What was it about your life then that is different about your life and your walk now? Think about that. Study that. Take time to remember the place of greater love that you have fallen from if indeed you have left your first love. After telling the Ephesian Christians to remember in verse 5, Jesus then tells them to repent. This means to change their mind and acknowledge their error, their sin. It means for them to say, I have been wrong to leave my first love. It is a sin that I have ended up here in the place where I am right now. And rather than continuing down this road of having abandoned my first love, I aim to go back to loving Jesus the way that I once did at the first. So it means to repent of having left your first love. I would also say it means to repent of any sins in your life that have caused your love for Jesus to cool. And to repent of any other loves that you have allowed to gain a higher place in your heart than Jesus. This command from Jesus also means to repent of your lack of repentance. Oftentimes, it is true that the reason our love for Christ begins to cool is because we have fallen out of the habit as Christians of repenting, of confessing our sins to God confessing our sins to others and repenting of those sins and then experiencing His forgiveness and His grace in a way that causes our hearts to melt into a love for Him that is hotter than fire. And so our great need often is to get back into the practice of daily repenting of our sins. Jesus then says to them, not just remember and repent, but then he says, and do the deeds you did at first. Notice he doesn't say, feel the feelings you felt at first. That's not the command. But do the deeds you did at first. If you have stopped loving Jesus as you should, it's not because you have helplessly simply fallen out of love with Jesus. It's because you've stopped doing certain things that you used to do. And Jesus is calling the Ephesians back to those things that they once did in an earlier time. Whatever these behaviors were, they were deeds that gave expression to their great love for Jesus. And they were deeds that served to nurture within them that first love and to keep it as hot as fire. So we're kind of left asking a question, and that is, what were these deeds that the Ephesian Christians did at first? Well, fortunately, we don't really have to guess. From Ephesians 1.13, you can write this reference down, we learned that in their earliest days, the beginning of their Christian life, they listened to the gospel message and they believed it for themselves. From Acts 19, as we've already seen, we see that upon believing in Christ, they were confessing their sins. They were disclosing their sinful deeds. They cared not about their reputation. They only cared about the reputation of Jesus. And they renounced their sins, even taking the radical step of burning the stuff that formerly enslaved them. And upon believing in Jesus and receiving the forgiveness of their sins, they were grateful to Him and they loved Him. And we learn in Ephesians 1.15 that their love for Him spilled over into their love for all the saints. So You can actually go through Acts 19 and Ephesians 1 and make a list of the deeds that they did at the first that no doubt nurtured in them. A love for Christ. So, in calling these Ephesian Christians back to these deeds they did at first, Jesus is calling them back to a lifestyle of listening to the gospel, believing. That the gospel is true for them, confessing their sins, being transparent before God and man about their sins, even allowing their sinful deeds to be exposed, and renouncing their sins and being willing to radically amputate those sins from their life, along with the practice of cherishing God's grace through Christ and loving Christ much because they realize that they have been forgiven of much. At the end of the message tonight, we're going to come back to these three instructions. Remember, repent, and repeat, if you want three R's. But for now, I hope you guys see that there's a deep and profound encouragement in Jesus' words here that I find so remarkable and touching. You know, if a person leaves their first love... It's easy for them to believe that, man, I must have never really loved Jesus in the first place. That's the lie the devil whispers in your ear, right? Look at you. You've left that love you used to have. That means that love was never genuine in the first place. But Jesus' words in this passage, guys, shows us that this is not true. When Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen, part of what he's saying is, guys, I remember where you used to be. Your former love for me was legit, and I remember it. You may not. I remember it. And Jesus is saying, please join me in remembering the place where you once were with me. He then says, repent and do the deeds you did at first. He's saying, I remember the things you used to do. I loved it when you did those things. Those things were wonderful and legitimate. And I'm beckoning you to start doing those things that you used to do when you truly loved me more. So don't let the devil lie to you. If some of you, even sitting here tonight, are in a place where you've backslidden away from the Lord. Backsliding is something that happens in the lives of true believers. And you look back on a better day when you really loved Jesus. I want you to know tonight that Jesus remembers that earlier day and He remembers that love that you had for Him. And He remembers what you used to do And he says to you, I want you to remember those things with me, and I want you to start doing those things again. Repent and do those things that you did in that earlier time. Now, we have to say, though, that this is not some casual call from Jesus. The stakes are high, and the fate of the Ephesian church hangs in the balance as to what they're going to do with what Jesus is saying here. And this leads us to the fifth act of Jesus as he seeks to turn them back to their first love. Number five, he warns them of the outcome if they don't return to their first love. He warns them of the outcome if they don't return to their first love. Look at the warning Christ delivers in verse five. He says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember that the lampstand is the what? The church. So what Jesus is saying is, you need to give heed to what I'm saying or I will remove your church from out of its place. Notice, though, that Jesus is not saying that he will destroy the lampstand but simply that he will remove it out of its place. This could mean removing it from its place of great usefulness or perhaps remove it from its prominent place of leadership among the seven churches of Asia Minor. Or he could be speaking of the removal of the church of Ephesus from existence altogether And think about that, guys. The only thing Jesus faults the Ephesian church for is leaving their first love. And here He is telling them that their destiny as a church is going to depend on whether they repent of their sin of having left their first love. If anything, Christ's warning here shows us how dangerous it is to leave one's first love Evidently, leaving one's first love introduces a level of malignancy into a person's life and into a church that will destroy a church if that is allowed to go unchecked. One commentator says that leaving one's first love is the starting point of all church and individual failure. And that's so true. I have read a handful of testimonies over the years of Christians, and I've even counseled Christians who have fallen into serious sin, and they have done things that an earlier version of themselves would have never dreamed possible. And they've all used different language to communicate this, but one of the common elements in all of their stories is that the downward slide began when they left their first love. When their passion for Christ cooled and they allowed other things to capture their hearts and then one thing led to another and then another and then another until one day they found themselves engaging in behaviors that ten years earlier they would have never thought possible. And it's against the backdrop of that understanding that we need to read Jesus' threat here to remove the Ephesians' lampstand from out of its place. Jesus here is not being vindictive or petty when he threatens to remove their lampstand out of its place. He is saying to the Ephesian church basically this, if you continue in this state of having abandoned your first love the malignancy of your lack of love will grow and fester and eventually affect your whole church to such a degree that there will be nothing worthwhile left. Other loves will creep in like a cancer and corrupt you. Sin will take root in your life and your flame will diminish to the point where I will be left with no choice but to remove your lampstand from out of its place of usefulness and leadership that it now occupies or even remove it from existence altogether. May this never be the fate of Cornerstone, that we would be removed from our place of usefulness in Christ's kingdom or that we would go out of existence as a church, or even worse, that we would still continue to exist but no longer be serving any useful purpose to Christ. That would be an awful fate, a fate that would have begun with us having left our first love. That is always the first of many sins. What Jesus does next as the passage continues to unfold shows us how worthy He is of us responding to what He's saying here and loving with all of our hearts because in verse 6, He takes a moment to share with the Ephesians yet another thing that He appreciates about them. So, He gives them rebuke, but on the front end and the back end, He's affirming them What's not to love about a Savior like this? This leads us to the sixth action of Christ as He calls them back to their first love. Number six, He commends them for hating what He hates. He commends them for hating what He hates. Look at what He says in verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans other than what we learned here in this passage and then in one other passage later in Revelation 2. All we really need to know for our purposes this evening is that the Nicolaitans engaged in deeds that Jesus hated. And Jesus here is commending the Ephesians for hating the same deeds that he hates, Our culture today likes to think of Jesus as someone who is nothing but love, but here Jesus actually tells us that there are deeds that he despises, and he's complimenting the Ephesian church for hating what he hates. And if you want to know what deeds Jesus hates, it's sinful deeds that violate God's holy commandments in His Word. Jesus loves His Father with all of His being, so He hates anything that the Father hates. He hates anything that violates God's perfect law. And if you and I say that we love Christ and we want to be like Him, then we must be a people who love what Jesus loves and who hate what Jesus hates, And I think I'm safe in saying that we need more hate in churches today. And when I say that, I mean a hatred that is born out of love, a hatred of the sin that ruins and wrecks people's lives, a hatred of false teaching that damns people to hell a hatred of compromise, a hatred of sins that are accepted and pronounced good in our society today, a hatred of our own sins. But with that hatred for what is wrong, we also need a love for Jesus, a passionate love for Jesus as the first and the greatest love of our life In fact, a passionate love for Jesus will inevitably produce in us a corresponding hatred for all that is contrary to Him, right? So don't go out of here tonight and say, man, I really want to cultivate hatred in my heart for sin. No, just cultivate a love for Jesus, and hatred of sin is a byproduct of that love for Him. Yet, the error of the Ephesian church does show us that it's possible to hate what Jesus hates in a commendable way and yet not love him the way that we are supposed to love him. The Ephesians were doing great on the hate thing, but not so great on the love thing. And when we fall into this error, we become, as Christians, more known for what we hate than we are for what we love And that's not a good thing. Nonetheless, Jesus commends them for hating what he hates. Jesus has said a lot of important things to the Ephesian church so far in this passage, and he wants every word that he has spoken to be heard by everyone, including us. This brings us to the seventh act of Jesus in his effort to turn the Ephesian church back to their first love. Number seven, he urges everyone to hear what he is saying to them. He urges everyone to hear what he is saying to them. In verse 7, Jesus says, "He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." It's interesting in the gospel in the gospel accounts, Jesus often says, "He who has ears," plural to hear, let him hear. But here he says, he who has an ear, singular, let him hear. As one commentator says, this means that if you have even one ear, listen to what Jesus is saying and what the Spirit of God is saying through the words that Jesus is speaking in Revelation 2 and 3. As for Jesus' exact wording, you want to be careful not to skim over this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Not just what he said right now to the Ephesian church, but what he's going to say to all seven churches. This is a call for the Ephesian readers to listen to everything that Jesus has just said to them, But it's also a call for the Ephesians to stick around and listen to what Jesus is going to say to the other six churches throughout the rest of chapter 2 and 3. This is also a call for the members of the other six churches to be listening in on what Jesus has just been saying to the Ephesian church. Keep in mind that the seven letters to the seven churches are not private letters. Some of the later churches would wish they were private. This is Jesus speaking to each church in front of the other six churches who can now learn from each other's mistakes and hold each other accountable. Jesus wants the other six churches of Asia Minor to hear what he has just said to the Ephesian church in these verses so that they might avoid leaving their first love, or if they have left their first love, that they would know how to get back to it. Jesus also wants them to hear what he's saying to the Ephesian church so that they can join Jesus in affirming the good things that he has said about the Ephesian church and also so that they can be praying for and encouraging and following up with the Ephesian church on how they're doing and getting back to their first love and doing what Jesus has commanded them to do here. In fact, imagine Jesus delivering a very particular message to Cornerstone. He walks among us for some time, and then he says, I got something to say to all of you, and we all gather together. And Jesus says, no, no, I don't want just you here. I want you to invite six other churches for them to hear what I'm going to say to you. That's what it's like for the Ephesian church here. And now they got six other churches who can hold them accountable and help them and encourage them on the path that Jesus has laid out for them. And in saying what he says here, Jesus clearly also wants us to listen to what he says to the Ephesian church because he says, here's the only qualification for you to be someone who should listen to what Jesus is saying. He who has an ear, to hear, let him hear. So how many of you here tonight, every head bowed, every eye closed, How many of you, raise your hand, have at least one ear? Raise your hand. Okay. Jesus wants you to hear what he has said to the Ephesian church and what he's going to be saying to the other six churches. To encourage and to challenge the Ephesians and us, Jesus does yet one final thing, and this leads us to the final act of Jesus as He calls them back to their first love. Number eight, He promises the tree of life to the person who overcomes. He promises the tree of life to the person who overcomes. Listen to His promise in verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The Greek word translated overcomes is the Greek word nakao, which is where we get our English word nike from. This word means to triumph or to be victorious. And Jesus says to him who triumphs, who is victorious, who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. By the way, here's a Bible trivia question for you. Do you know the last time in the Bible that the tree of life has been mentioned prior to this verse here in Revelation 2-7? When was the last time in all of Scripture that the tree of life is mentioned prior to Revelation 2-7? You can write this reference down, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. That's how long it's been. The tree of life was once in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, God drove them from the garden and blocked their access to. The tree of life, so that Adam and Eve would not be able to eat from it and live forever in their fallen, sinful state. But here we're being told that the tree of life is going to be made available once again. Its location will be in the paradise of God, and those who overcome will be granted eternal access to this tree of life. So you say, I want to I overcome. How do I do that? Well, you need to realize that Jesus is the one who overcame at the cross. His victory was sealed when he was raised from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. And anyone who puts their trust in Jesus is instantly and forever an overcomer because they're in him and we actually have an explanation of what it means to overcome in Revelation 12:11 you might want to write that reference down Revelation 12:11 where John speaks of believers in Christ who overcame Satan because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even to death So how does one become an overcomer and eat from the tree of life and the paradise of God? First of all, by receiving and cherishing the atonement that Christ provides through His blood that was shed at the cross. Secondly, by believing in the gospel word that now serves as your testimony. And thirdly, by loving Jesus first and foremost, even more than your own life, all the way to your last breath. And if you have left your first love, you can overcome by following the instructions that Jesus very helpfully provides in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, in order to help you back to your first love. And just as we wrap things up, let me just go back to those three instructions. Three R's. Number one, remember. Jesus tells us, to remember if we have left our first love, to remember where we have fallen from. Genuinely, guys, take this assignment to heart and remember the way things were with you and Christ in a former better day when you were walking more closely with him and loving him more. Remember the things you did and the disciplines that you practiced. And whatever you find yourself remembering, realize that Jesus remembers those things too. Those memories of those earlier days are more precious to him than they are even to you. Remember them and ask Christ to help you to remember what he remembers and to help you to remember when things began to take a turn for the worse and you began to leave your first love. Secondly, repent. Be drastic with anything in your life that has caused your love for Christ to grow cold or caused you to grow distant from Him. Repent of any sins that have taken root in your life that you've just come to accept. Maybe this is just who I am. These sins are never going to go away. Renounce any loves that have captured your heart and have assumed a higher place in your heart than Jesus Tear down any idols that have captured your affections and be willing to be as drastic as you need to be. And again, don't just repent of having left your first love. Be repenting, period. One of the primary reasons that our love for Christ begins to wane is because as Christians, sometimes we just stop repenting. We stop seeing our sin for the awful thing that it is. We stop confessing our sin and obtaining cleansing and forgiveness from God. And then we begin to lose sight of how amazing God's grace is through Christ. And the more that happens, the less we love Jesus. When was the last time you repented of a sin after you committed it? Think about that. And when I ask that, I'm not just asking... When was the last time you felt bad about something? Judas felt really bad about what he had done. I'm asking if you repented. Repentance embodies hope. Repenting at the feet of Christ. I'm asking if you repented out loud, confessing your sin as sin, making no excuses and asking for God's forgiveness and receiving that forgiveness that he's already decided upon in Christ and obtaining that pardon in your conscience and cleansing through the blood of Christ. And then, when necessary, even confessing your sin to somebody else that you have sinned against. Are you doing that? Martin Luther, in his day, said that the Christian life is to be a life of daily repentance. So be a daily repenter. Repent out loud before God and others. Confess your sins to God and to others and relish God's grace to you through Christ. And if you do that, I know that you will increasingly realize that you have been forgiven of much and therefore you're going to love Jesus much. And then lastly, repeat. Repeat. Repeat, do the things you used to do when you were closer to Christ. Get back in the Word, feast on Christ through His Word. Even read the book of Revelation. Part of John's purpose in this book is to present the power and the glory and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in such a way that would leave us with a fresh sense of awe and love for Him. When we see Jesus, as we saw last week, in glory appearing before the Apostle John, and when we read on in Revelation and see the wrath of the Lamb that will be visited upon the earth, we will want to fall down before Him as a dead person like John did in Revelation 1, but then... We feel Jesus move towards us and reach out his right hand and touch us and say, you no longer have any cause to be afraid of me because you have believed in me. I died, I shed my blood so that you could have atonement for your sins and be safe in me, protected from my wrath forever and ever. Guys, this is the one who loves us. On top of reading Revelation, pray to God, fellowship with the saints, preach the gospel to yourself, remind yourself often of what your life was like before Christ saved you. Remind yourself of the magnitude of your sins and see afresh the magnitude of God's forgiveness of those sins. Don't ever let yourself forget the pit from which you were dug. Don't Ever forget the hell that you were destined for before Christ saved you. And don't even forget that your sins as a Christian are actually greater than your sins as a non believer because now we're sinning against the truth. But Christ's grace is even greater than the sins that we commit as Christians. And so we can repent to him boldly and with courage knowing that there is grace through Him as we come to Him in repentance each day. Guys, if we do these things, I'm confident we'll find ourselves being carried by Jesus back to the place of our first love. And if you're here tonight and you have never believed in Jesus, I just call upon you to trust in Him tonight See his beauty, his power, his grace, and believe in him. Call upon his name and receive salvation through him. Let him bring you into relationship with his father and bring you into relationship with himself. He loved you enough to die for you. And he will love you enough to come chasing after you when he notices that even as a believer, you've left your first love and he will always love you and I enough to lead us back to himself no matter how far we stray. Jesus is the only Lord who loves you enough to never ever let you down, and who always stands ready to chase after you and forgive you when you let him down. And all of us tonight ought to be thinking, what is not to love? about a savior like this. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing grace that you have shown us in Christ. You are so good to save us, And then when we stray to come chasing after us and to speak truth to us and then to call us back to you. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here tonight that have, are in a dark place, they're backslidden away from you, that they would find hope in this passage that they would see your beauty and your grace and yet your truth speaking, your firmness and know that, man, this is who I need in my life and I, I need him so much I wanna walk closely with this one who's full of grace and full of truth. And I pray that they would repent before you tonight. Help all of us to do that wherever it's needed that we might be overcomers in you. And I ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.